Hello and welcome to Time for a Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Lisa. And this is the first of a new strand of episodes we're doing called A Slice of Pie, where we track down big fans of Twin Peaks and uh, get them to talk about how they're enjoying the new series. Yeah, so this week we had a Skype interview with Seth Manukin at MIT, and this is our first Slice of Pie. Yeah, hope you enjoy. So, joining us today for A Slice of Pie is journalist, writer, director of MIT's science writing programme, Seth Manukin, and we'd also like to add, huge Twin Peaks fan. Yes, and it is, uh, as, as I said right when we got on, it's such a thrill to talk to you guys. It's slightly jarring that you have taken human form and are no longer <laughs> in pixelated form, uh, but... Um, it's. Uh, I do feel like I've spent a lot of time with you two because I've listened to so many of your your podcasts. Oh, thank you. Um, so yeah, we kind of thought it'd be really fun to talk to you a little bit about you know your feelings on Twin Peaks: The Return so far. Maybe dig a little bit into uh, some of the aspects you've liked, thought were important. Maybe casting a slightly critical eye over it as well. You know what maybe hasn't worked or what things you hope might happen in sort of the, rem- uh, the remaining episodes as well. Yeah. Um, so I suppose as a first question, so how long have you been a Twin Peaks fan? So I actually, the first time I saw Twin Peaks was a little more than five years ago. Um, I, w- I remember when very well when Twin Peaks came out and was at a, a stage of my life where anything that was cool, I was too cool to think was cool. So uh, the fact that Twin Peaks had gotten a lot of hype and was very popular when it started out sort of immediately meant that I was not going to be paying attention to it. And then also um, I was only really around and with a TV for the first couple of months of season one. Um, And then I didn't have a TV when I went off to school. And so there weren't opportunities to watch it. Excuse me. Um, So the first time I watched it, my wife did watch it when it came out. Uh, and was a big fan. Um, and when it came on Netflix, that was when I started watching it. And then by the time we were a little bit through, uh, not even all the way through season one, um, I had bought the complete mystery because I wanted it in the highest quality possible. And uh, and so now have seen seasons one and two in Firewalk With Me and The Missing Pieces and all of the extras uh, I've seen all of those probably a minimum of three times um, uh, and um, have seen every episode of The Return at least twice and most of them three times. Um, I sort of I, I feel like at this point I could not get too much Twin Peaks. In fact, I have <laughs> I have surrounding me on my desk uh, my my Bob and, and, and Laura and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, log lady. Wow. Uh, action figures. Yeah. So, you know, it's the end of 2014, and there's an announcement that Twin Peaks is coming back 25 years later. So, what was your initial response to that? So, my initial response was um, I was not as kind of overwhelmed with joy as I was when I started watching. Um, just because, you know, 
I mean, I, I'm someone who saw, I was five years old when Star Wars came out. I saw it seven times in the theater, and then I had to live through the prequels. Um, and so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm someone who, I, I guess I'm wary about reboots. I think when it was announced, the X-Files reboots had not yet come out and taken a big dump on my memory of the X-Files forever. <laughs> um, but uh, just, you know, I, it, it was, the, the, obviously there were a lot of problems with season two. It was not a perfect series, but I loved it so much. And I was a little bit worried um, uh, about what would happen, especially then when David Lynch was going to be involved and wasn't going to be involved. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, it, it was almost like I didn't want to let myself be disappointed. Um, but that changed by the time it came out. You know, I had I had marked off that time on our calendars for the entire run uh, to make sure that we would not be anywhere and, and, and could watch it as soon as it came out. So. So now that we're, we're about two thirds of the way through, what are your kind of overall feelings about the new season? Um, I mean, overall, and I don't want this to sound sort of hokey. I, I really feel lucky to be um, both a fan of the show and watching it in real time. Um, not because I think it's perfect, but because it's such a thrill to be able to live in someone's kind of fully realized creation um, and live in it week after week and also sort of participate in a community that's living with it. I mean, there are, you know, I, I sort of joked about how I felt like I knew you as pixelated figures, but there are all of these <laughs> people who I feel like I know some aspect of their personality. You know, I mean, I, I, I have a sense that if I overheard Joel Bacco talking, I would know who he was, even though I've never heard his voice. Actually, that's not true. I probably have heard his voice on as a guest on podcast, but just from his writing style um, and knowing how he approaches episodes, um, you know, same with John Thorne, uh, same with, um, you know, the folks at, on Diane. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a very, um, in my experience, it's a very generous fan community uh, in that it's accepting of people who like turned on the TV and just watched it for the first time or for people who absolutely hated the last three episodes and loved the James story arc from season two. Actually, I don't know if there is anyone who loves the James story arc from season two, but let's imagine there is. Um, uh, um, so, so, so for all of those reasons, but then really to kind of, to get to, um, experience essentially David Lynch, who's a filmmaker who I love doubling his filmed output, um, in one fell swoop. It just, it's, it's, it, I feel lucky to be experiencing this as it happens. Yeah. I think that's a sentiment, which many many people have expressed it does feel like a real gift to be allowed almost to experience this um on a personal level but also like you say with the whole community of people um and i think what's interesting is that you know the engagement is happening through so many different forms of media at the moment um which i think i mean back in 1990 91 it was limited to uh, internet 
um, groups that were kind of tracking this and you know, right. trying to come up with theories and trying to speak about it. But now we have the ability to, even like we're doing now, just you know, chat with people right. everywhere in the world in real time about what um, what's happening, and everyone's watching it at the same time. Right. Yeah. No. It's. I mean. It's. 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 It is. It's really thrilling. Um, and it's also. You know. I mean. Uh, everyone has their favorite episodes from the original run. Um, but certainly, uh, the way I experienced it, watching it all in a row later, was that David's interest and participation in the series sort of waxed and waned. Um, and he's even talked about how you know he would decide on what episodes he wanted to direct by what episodes he sort of couldn't bear not to direct. Um, and that sometimes he felt like he sort of needed to prod Kyle McLaughlin to kind of fully embody the agent Cooper that he had imagined. And a corollary to that is that there were episodes that he didn't feel compelled to direct. Uh, and there were times that he wasn't there to prod him. Um, and so I, I did wonder going in, even knowing that he was going to direct it all, you know, how much of his interest is this really going to sustain? Um, and it seems clear that it sustained all of his interest uh, um, for a very long time. Um, uh, yeah. So in terms of what we've seen so far, I mean, I know what the answer is at our end, but... Have you been surprised by what's been happening in the first 13 episodes? Of Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, consistently, even, you know, I, even I've been surprised after knowing that I've been surprised through the first X number of episodes. <laughs> and then I sort of think, well, all right, there's nothing that they can throw at me. And then, you know, you have uh, um, episode 11 with the scene at the double R and the girl vomiting in the car mm. and the just like one of the more surreal scenes even more surreal than the vortex in some ways in that same episode. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I've been consistently surprised. Audrey completely <laughs> surprised me. Um, uh, and then she re-surprised me this week. Um, so it's, which, which is something that is, is pretty impressive, I think in its own right. Um, you know, I, I, People have talked and written and, and, and thought a lot about episode eight. Um, I just that was such a moving kind of monumental hour of television to me, uh, almost on a level, not just on whether it did or did not succeed aesthetically, but that an artist would try to tackle themes like that um, uh, and sort of dare to put forward a vision like that um, was, it was just when I was watching it, it, you know, it was one of the only times in my life where I felt like my jaw literally had just dropped open, uh, involuntarily. Um, it was, it was incredible. Do you think that being able to sort of have seven days between episodes at the moment to think about everything, rewatch it, mull everything over before we get the next episode is going to be a very different experience to anyone who comes to it in the future and has you know, a, a box set that they can watch I mean even now a lot of the shows that we watch we watch on Netflix and all the episodes will be up and it's so tempting to think oh, I'm just going to watch one more one right. more um, and you don't get that emotional space between episodes to dwell on them and at the moment we're 
forced to have that emotional space and it's yeah. actually quite a wonderful thing um is, is it going to be different for people who watch it in one go i'm, I'm sure i i can't imagine um consuming this in in one fell swoop i mean I, I, you know i actually waited uh i watched episode one and two the first night they were available and then waited a week and watched episode three and four um uh you know my thoughts and reactions and feelings change multiple times over those seven days uh in between when they first air uh when it airs and then when the next episode airs um and my experience of the entire run i think is is infinitely richened because i have that time to digest it and think it over um and change my opinions and go back to my original opinions and all of that um uh it's it to me it feels um like it would be incredibly overwhelming trying to consume this all in one meal uh at the same time you know i i'm i hope that uh our sort of local art house cinema shows over maybe two days the entire run i think that would also be thrilling in its own way um but for me it's it's been very important to have time to think and 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 process what's going on and and that's actually as much a part of the experience as actually watching the episode um, is spending that time thinking it over. And if I, you know, I mean, think if, if I, if I had watched episodes 10 through 13 all at once, uh, it would be just a dramatically different experience. Mm. So 13 hours into this 18 hour long movie, what have been your uh, particular highlights so far? Well, episode eight, definitely. Um, uh it's uh yeah episode eight was was thrilling just on on so many levels um and another highlight and this is not related to a specific episode but the i've never had this i've had this sense with literature in the past but i've never had this sense with a tv show that there is no level of scrutiny for which you will not be rewarded um uh it's impossible to go too deep, even if, you know, I mean, there was someone added up the letters of, of characters' names and found they equaled 119, which I <laughs> don't think is actually something that was planned. Uh, um, but even things like that are fascinating and fun. And it could have been planned. I wouldn't but it passed, especially Mark Frost. Um, uh, you know, so many of the oddities seem deliberate, uh, um, and that's just so, it's so satisfying, um, for this type of mass entertainment to take the viewer that seriously, um, and to put the sort of care and time into creating something that is, that, that there's no level of scrutiny for which you will not be rewarded. So that's been really, uh, really fun and cool. In terms of individual episodes, um, I loved episode 13. Uh, I loved episode 11. Um, I thought that last half hour was uh, just brilliant um, with with Dougie going out in the desert and that, that entire sequence. Um, 
something else I really love is um, trying to uh, find all of the references to other movies uh, mm-hmm. and other TV shows that seem to be baked into this um, and to find all the references to David Lynch's own work. Um, uh, I rewatched Eraserhead recently and just all the way through, I felt like I could say, oh yeah, there, that's, that was from that scene. And oh yeah, he echoed this over here. Um, uh, and that's obviously true, you know, with Mulholland Drive and, and in some very literal ways, um, but also just with shots and sonically and, um, uh, so, um, yeah, in terms of episodes, I would need to go back and sort of, uh, remember what the individual episodes before episode eight were, um, uh, um, episodes one and two, I also thought were pretty astounding. Um, you know, I came out of that first night thinking that whatever I had been expecting, uh, this was more than I would have imagined. How about you guys? Do you have, well, I was going to do, do you have favorite episodes? I certainly found that after one of my strongest memories is the credits rolling at the end of part two. Yeah. And just thinking, what, what have I just watched? Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't anything that I could have expected, but it was so much more than, than anything that I could have expected. Right. And then in the weeks that followed, I would occasionally just find um, that shadow would just pop into my head and I would feel almost kind of shell-shocked again yeah. <laughs> because I, I I couldn't separate it from that feeling of, of sitting there at, I mean, it was like three in the morning or something mm-hmm. like that, just thinking, whoa, I'd, I need to watch that again right now <laughs> because yeah. I don't know what I just saw. I, it's, it's, I, I've been thinking about that for people watching it over on the other side of the Atlantic, the sense of unreality must be heightened by the fact that you're watching at three in the morning, unless yeah. you're always up at three in the morning. No, so it's, well, um, initially we were actually staying up until it was on. So it was airing about, what, it's only at 2 originally. 2 a.m., yeah. yeah. And the only reason we were staying up was because we were so excited that we couldn't get any rest before. <laughs> right, yes, yeah, right. <laughs> and the strangest thing is, you become completely transfixed watching. I think at any time, but at that time of the morning, it's just a very surreal experience. You kind of let it wash over you. You get to experience it, feel it. And it does feel like you are living inside a dream. I mean, it's it's incredible to watch. I think you're, you're a lot more heightened to the experience when right. you're in that kind of zone as well. And when it ends, it always leaves you buzzing as well, which is also a problem when it's Monday morning and we yes. have to get up for work <laughs> right. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, they bumped it to three because <laughs> over here it airs on the same channel as Game of Thrones and they wanted to show Game of Thrones live, so they, they bumped Twin Peaks. So then we found that it was just impossible to stay up until it started. So we tried to sleep and then wake up and watch it and then sleep again. Which must be so even it's like weirder. having the strangest dream in the middle of sleeping on either side. It's very strange. Right. Uh, it kind of just cut out there. Yes. So... I, I noticed. Wait, now are you not getting my... <laughs> so. It must be the woodsman. Right. Um... Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Okay, so... Oh, my God! 
<laughs> that's, the other, that's the other thing. Um, the new series has given us so many quotable bits of dialogue. Yes. And it's actually quite funny, not only using them around the house or at work, but specifically using them in front of people who have no idea what yes, we're right, talking about. Yes, right, 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 right. <laughs> Although I think now, like, hello has become enough of a cultural touchstone that people no longer look at you really oddly when you just do that at the grocery store or whatever. I saw someone wearing that on a t-shirt in London mm. a couple of weeks ago. I don't know where they'd got this t-shirt from, but it was a Mr. Jackpot t-shirt with a hello. Yeah, that, a that's nice all it said. have a knowing wink. Right, yeah. Somebody. Right. Yeah. But even some of the most quotable lines, and this is, this is what I, I, one of the things I find remarkable about the old season as well as the new season is that even characters who appear for only one scene and only have a few lines are so memorable and they get such brilliant lines yes that i I don't know how many times now we've said it's a world of truck drivers yeah right 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 (laughs) well i mean it's 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 something else about the 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 level of acting is is startling i mean it's um uh you know the, the the performances are consistently just incredible, incredible performances of nuance and depth, regardless of, you know, you think about um, Grace Zabriskie, she's been on screen total for like six minutes, maybe. Mm. And that has been an incredibly powerful six minutes. Um, mm. uh, you know, Catherine Coulson, um, uh, just characters who in, in the, in the, on the scale of the show are sort of a blip. But um, their presence looms so large over over everything that goes on. So let's talk a little bit about you know some of these characters. I think primarily we have Cooper and all yeah. the iterations of Cooper yes. that have existed um, so far. Now, I think that was perhaps one of the most jarring things at the beginning of part one when the introduction of uh, Carl McCoughlin was the first appearance of Mr. C, the car driving yeah. down him. The American woman. At that point, we knew that we were in for something that we were not expecting and something very, very special as well. Yeah. What's been your um, view on Carl McLaughlin's appearance in all these different iterations of, uh, of Cooper and how that's actually affected the storytelling that we're uh, seeing in The Return so far? It's certainly given me a new appreciation for him as an actor. Um, uh you know, I, I think what he's managing to pull off, um, and particularly with Dougie, um, which is a pretty tough character not to just have come across as sort of Peter Sellers and being there, which and that being there is a great movie, but that was sort of a one note performance. Um, and the subtle changes within Dougie in recognition in the way that these little glimmers of Dale Cooper seem to be coming through is, is I think just startling to see. Um, uh, He's also, he also is doing a great villain. Um, I I always, I always think of villains as being slightly easier to do. Uh, um, He is embodying that character and it is a terrifying character. Um, But in many ways, I find Dougie, which I think is probably the character that overall people are most frustrated with, to be one of the more impressive performances. 
Um, and as soon as I stopped thinking that Agent Cooper was going to come back, uh, then my experience with the return has been um, much. Uh, it's I, I feel like I've been able to engage with it on its level um, instead of on what I thought might happen or might want to happen. Um, and I think it in 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 you know and it's really brilliant how um, the show has sort of forced fans to realize that you can't make life the way it was in some imagined past. Um, you know, a 31-year-old a, a Kyle MacLachlan with slicked back hair uh, um, drinking coffee and giving a thumbs up um, to Michael Onkin, we're not going to, that's never going to happen because it's now 2017 um, and not 1989 or 1990. Uh, um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm I, I have, I think we likely will get some form of Dale Cooper back before the end, some more whole form. But I also, at this point, would not be surprised if we don't. And I would not be um, upset if we didn't. I wouldn't feel like, you know, that the Lynch and Frost had tricked me somehow. So I think one aspect of the return, which I think only became clear to us um, a few hours in, was the fact that the return is really referencing not the show per se but the arcs that a lot of these characters um, are embarking on so we have like you say the return after 25 years and that's a long time people change Um, characters have changed and I think we are reaching the point when lots of the different plot strands are starting to converge on Twin Peaks Right. Um, so we are going to see, I think, a lot of activity there. But the return seems to be, you know, a thematic idea which is coming up rather than um, a literal subheading of what the show is about. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it, it's again, um, it's something that David in particular essentially told us beforehand. You know, I mean, he said the show is about learning to become who you are as a person again, which very literally is what it's been. I mean, that's something else that um, that interests me about about Lynch as a filmmaker is the amount of times that for all of the sort of dream logic weirdness that that I think people associate with Lynch, very often he does exactly what he says he's going to do. And he tells you exactly what that is. People just are disinclined to believe it. but uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it's. I think probably. Um, I think you 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 two talked this week in the podcast about how the EW cover was sort of a, a fake out in some ways. Is that am I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and um, you know, you had that. You had the obvious. You had the, just the name, the return. Um, you had the fact that Lynch and Frost were both going to be there. You had the fact that the secret history dealt with a lot of the characters from the original, um, even if it dealt with them in a seemingly slightly different reality, like Norma. And uh, um, it dealt with them as characters in the original, essentially. Um, and uh, that's not what we have gotten or are getting um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I do, you know, I also think that, um, at some 
vague October 1st and 2nd in the future, things will converge on, on, on Twin Peaks. But the same way that I would not be shocked if Dougie didn't turn into Dale, I would not be shocked if that convergence didn't happen. I, you know, I, I could see it would, I could see it being equally plausible that in episode 16, we have Michael Aunt Kane returns. We have, you know, both Sheriff Truman's, Big Ed, Dale Cooper, all of the Bookhouse boys back in some epic battle in Glastonbury Grove, and none of that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those seem equally plausible to me. And I think the the, the level, you know, I mean, it, it, it seems also plausible to me that David Bowie, a character who, uh, the, the person who played that character is dead, uh, and by all accounts, he did not film. But somehow I think it would be totally plausible if he showed up uh, in the last couple of episodes, which if you think about it is sort of crazy. Um, I, he still might show up, but, uh, the chances given how private he was about his illness, it's, that seems highly unlikely. So like that, that kind of raises an interesting point. So what's been interesting, I think has been the fact that the return has drawn very heavily on the mythology of the original series I think there are very strong indications uh, that Mark Frost's hand is evident from the secret history and how that's coming through here, although not necessarily uh, directly. I think at one point people thought that the book was potentially a complete misdirection, but it's clear that elements of that um, are coming to the fore. But I've been really surprised about the elements from Fire Walk With Me, which are really creeping in now. And you raised that just now with the character of uh, Philip Jeffrey. So we've just had uh, Chet Desmond being spoken yeah, about. Yeah, for the first time, um, right. Poor John Thorne and his dream yeah. theory. <laughs> Although I still maintain that the dream theory, that that is not the total death knell for the dream theory, that Chet yeah. Desmond could be real and it's and, and Cooper still could have dreamed the Deer Meadow prologue, but it's another topic. <laughs> but so, uh, so what's your thought on, you know, on the use of characters um, and the relevance, the importance of um, of people like Philip Jeffries. I mean, he seems to be this mysterious puppet master behind yeah. what's going on. And he has tremendous power in the story, but, you know, we haven't seen him yet. And to many casual viewers, they may not really They're, be they aware have no of idea. Yeah. his significance in, in Fire Walk With Me. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, I think it's another example of how we should actually listen to what Lynch says, because he indicated that Fire Walk With Me was going to be very important um, uh, to this. And I think, um, and you know, in some, I, I also, in some ways, I, I, I wish I had watched it the first time around because I think that would have been thrilling in its own way. But the fact that I got to watch fire walk with me without sort of knowing the whole fraught history, I just was floored by, I mean, I thought it was one of the most powerful, affecting, grim, gruesome, painful movies that I'd ever seen. Um, uh, and I sort of loved it from the, from the get-go, if you can say love about something that's that kind of ugly on some levels. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Philip Jeffries has been, um, it's, he's, he's been interesting because he clearly is not someone who has just been like referred to once. Um, it almost is like, uh, you know, with, with, with Major Briggs, it feels like some of that is is an homage to 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 the actor who played Major Briggs um, and the affection that everyone had for him. Uh, um, th- you don't get that sense with Jeffries. You get the sense that he is important to this mythology and this universe. Um, and 
sort of on the same theme that maybe the answer to things is right in front of us, um, I increasingly am thinking that the one-armed man is Philip Jeffries. Um, I always thought it was odd that in the credits, he's not identified as Mike. He's identified as Philip, um, Philip Gerard, but identified as Philip. Uh, because in the lodge, that's not, you would assume that that's not who he is. Um, uh, that he essentially is his lodge presence when he's in the lodge. Um, and I've also been confused as to why the lodge seems to be helping Dougie Cooper, um, in the way that it is, because it sort of implies that the, that the lodge is a benevolent entity in a way that it has never been portrayed. Um, and so, and, you know, I would not be at all surprised if this entire theory was proven wrong tomorrow, but I, I, I increasingly think that what the lodge is interested in, they don't care whether Dale Cooper or Dougie Cooper lives or dies. They care about writing a sort of cosmic imbalance that resulted with Bob escaping um, and not being there and you know, going back to 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 fire walk with me, stealing. Uh, no, not even going back to the original series, stealing um, Garmin Bosia, and that's what's going on here. And uh, and and Dale Cooper is an or Dougie is an important part of that because the only way they can get Mister C and Bob um, back is is sort of with that the good Cooper's help. Um, so uh, and. Yeah, so that's been that's been sort of where I recently have come down on that because it did really confuse me as to why um, Cooper was getting all or Dougie was getting all of this assistance. Um, uh, it, yeah, so um, but it, but but it is. I also you know I I, I think that there's something also. Um, I love how un unabashed the show is about challenging its viewers, Um, not just challenging them with showing them things that are difficult, but sort of saying, like, you're not going to be able to dip into this. You know, you really you this is a commitment. You need to dive in here. Um, You might not need to read The Secret History three or four times, but uh, it's not going to hurt if you do. Um, Yeah. yeah, I think it, it's 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 exciting to see artists sort of make those demands um, on 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 viewers. What's you do you do you two have a theory about about what's going on with with Philip Jeffries and? I, my most recent thinking is that maybe there is there is an entity that is still Philip Jeffries in some form out there, but that there is also someone pretending to be Philip Jeffries who right. could be Mike um, slash Philip Gerard. Um, for people who wouldn't know Philip Jeffries, who had never met him, and was basically almost using the name Philip Jeffries as uh, a kind of peg to hang their plans on. Right. If it was a name that had become known in, in those circles, we don't really know what happened to it. Yeah. Um, to the real Philip Jeffries. So whether, whether or not he still exists, I think that at the very least, Mike is 
using his name in order to achieve his own ends. Right. But I would, I, I would still like to hope that that doesn't rule out the possibility that David Bowie right. is out there somewhere and could appear. But it's, it's starting to get a slimmer and slimmer hope by this point. It's also, I mean, he's he, Philip Jeffries is such a. Um, He's such a fascinating character because even in those, the you know, you talk about very little screen time and a very large presence, even in his appearance, both in Firewalk With Me and The Missing Pieces, to me, it was sort of unclear whether he was um, an FBI agent who had infiltrated the convenience store in the Lodge world or maybe a Lodge spirit who had infiltrated the FBI. Um, it just was you know, he, there was an otherworldness about him, even compared to Mike and 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 Bob. Um, you know, if you saw Philip Jeffries walking down the street as he was portrayed in those movies, he would look like someone trying to imitate an Earthling, um, uh, um, and which is something that David Bowie sort of pulled off in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, but I think his character is, you know, it's it's in that it was never defined is also really fascinating. Um, that just reminded me of of of, uh, of a way that this sort of endless obsessiveness is 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 rewarded um, when when uh, when Candy Clark appeared as Doris Truman, uh, and I realized that she was the person who. The David Bowie character uh, um, uh, in the Man Who Fell to Earth, it, it, it was it was like worlds colliding, <laughs> um, uh, and 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 what that did, what that does for me is it creates this sense of the boundaries between um, between fictional universes and our universe being very porous, uh, because then you have a character crossing over from my experience in the real world with one fictional world to a totally unrelated fictional world. Um, and uh, yeah, and you see that again and again and again. So um, in terms of how The Return has been structured as this 18-hour movie, so that's been bandied around a lot as you know as how we should view this whole thing, but it is still being presented as roughly an hour Right. long episode per week now what do you think about you know potentially some of the criticisms that have been made about the pacing the weighting of different arcs etc um, in light of the fact that you know at some point maybe up to 18 months ago there was a finalized script that was written by right. mark frost and david lynch and then now what we're ending up with is you know that script interpreted by um, by David Lynch as a director into a you know into a visual form as well. Right. But knowing that both Lynch and Frost are behind it, uh, how do you kind of reconcile all these you know, all these different aspects? Yeah. Well, so f the, first the pacing thing. I mean, um, I love the pacing. I, I loved the Green Onions sweeping scene. <laughs> Um, apart from the fact that I thought it was ridiculous that uh, the 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 floor of a bar would be totally dry at the end of the day, I thought that was the least realistic thing that has appeared in the return. Um, but uh, you know something that that Lynch manages to do is every second he makes you wait, um, the world becomes scarier uh, because this sense of 
is this is he holding on this because something horrible is about to happen or is he holding on this because he wants us to just sit and watch some guy sweep for two minutes um uh i i, I find those moments to be um very memorable and powerful um uh so I, I I have not had a problem with the pacing. Um, uh, you know, I didn't have a problem with the the with the Audrey scene. I didn't have a problem with the forty five seconds that you waited after you saw her before anything happened. Um, although that does, I think, add to the unreality of that. Um, it's one of the reasons people are wondering: is it a, a movie? Is it a is it a theatrical performance? What's going on here? Um, uh, so yeah, so the pacing is something that I like, and it also I also like it because it has made me realize how often when I am watching something, even if I'm watching something that I'm really engaged in, I'm also checking my phone, or uh, you know waiting for an email to come in, or thinking about something else, and it's 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 hard to do that if you do that while while watching the, this season, um, uh, you're going to miss something. Um, in terms of this sort of move, the evolution from what you assume is a linear script to something that is not linear. And I think episode 13 established that beyond a doubt for anyone who thought that this was occurring just in an ABC. Um, you can no longer pretend that that's true. Uh, I, I am, I, I'm really curious as to, um, as to, Mark Frost's input and reaction to that aspect of it. Um, and I realize even in saying that, that I might be making assumptions that are totally false. Um, and I'm sort of assuming that Frost, uh, judging on his on his other work, judging on the secret history, is someone who likes putting together puzzles that are convoluted and complicated, but are decipherable in some logical way. Um, and I think that's not always going to be true with this season of Twin Peaks. Um, you know, you, you, you were talking about, uh, on this week's episode, why the hell is everyone at work on Saturday? Um, <laughs> and, uh, I suspect that the answer there is just because that's Lynch put them together this way. And so that means today's Saturday and oh, well, too bad. Um, I think some of the other sort of dislodgings of time, might be more intentional. Um, but I don't know about that either. Um, you know, a, another example being um, when Diane and, and I think you also, did you, I think you also talked about that in this episode, but if not, you talked about it in the last episode. Um, when in, in, uh, in episode 12, when Diane is inducted into the task force and is wearing red and then is at the bar wearing red and then is at the bar wearing green, that seemed more deliberate um, to me because they showed Diane in flashback looking at those coordinates, which is an odd thing for them to do because they don't usually sort of connect the dots that way. They would assume that the viewers would know if she was saying coordinates, that that was what she was doing. And it seems like that was that was done explicitly to show that she was wearing the green top in that scene also. And so those two things possibly should be connected temporally. Um, uh, but who knows? Um, and, and yeah, I, I, you know, I think the, the, the creative tension, um, between 
someone or what I assume is is Mark Frost's inclination with with David Lynch's inclination, um, which is, uh, you know, a set dresser appears in a mirror. Perfect. He's going to be the emotional fulcrum of uh, of this entire series or one of the fulcrums. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating tension. I thought I mean. The, I'm I'm curious. So I my, I thought that episode a lot of episode twelve took place before episode eleven. Like it made it made sense to me that the induction into the Blue Rose Task Force, all that would take place before they went to the Vortex site. Um, because why would you go there and then that night induct say you know what we're gonna there's this super weird stuff happening and we want you to be a part of it. You do that before you go there and someone's head is blown off and. Um, but, yeah, who knows? Yeah, because we we kept wondering why is Diane still around? And yeah. Why does she not think it's strange that they're still having her hang around? But if they'd already asked her to kind of temporarily join the gang by that point, it would make more sense. But I, I've I've been putting together this insane spreadsheet trying to figure out the timeline because I had to have something to do on Monday, and. Um, I still can't fathom the the change to red and then green again because you have an establishing shot before she's wearing red of the hotel in Buckhorn, but she's wearing yeah. red when they went to Yankton. And I, there must be an explanation, or maybe there is no explanation. Right, right. Well, um, as, as as I mean, I was trying to decipher this with my wife, and it, my wife said, "Well, she had she she." didn't know she was going for so long so she packed a limited number of outfits so it could just be that she's wearing it again um and i said that can't be the answer it can't be something as prosaic <laughs> as that um uh yeah but it is um and and so i mean which is one of the it's sort of one of the um this probably frustrates some people but it's something that i kind of love i think simultaneously you could have areas where what Diane is wearing is meant to be enormously significant and other areas where there's discontinuity and it's not supposed to mean anything at all. Um, I think both of that could be happening. Yeah. I think by the time I got to also trying to track Lucy's cardigan, work out (laughs) what was happening here. And then I got to Mr. Todd's ties and I thought maybe I'm going too far now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The color of his ties and when, when are people talking to him? When is Mr. C talking to him? I, I was trying to figure out if there was another scene where he was wearing the same color tie. But, uh, but it, it, it does, was a fun way to pass an afternoon. <laughs> I mean, it does get to that same idea that there's no level of obsessiveness that is not going to be rewarded. Um, and and if they did just film everything at once and then cut it later, um, assuming that you had, at least in the script, the sort of Mark Frost puzzle piecing together logical organization, then it would not at all surprise me that, okay, well, you make sure he changes his tie because now it's a different day. Um, uh, but again, who knows? You know, I mean, there's also, you also have the the capitalization in the texts and the lowercase in the text to and from Diane. And what does that mean? Um, uh, you know, everyone has seen, not everyone, Many people have um, seems like have assumed that those communications are between Diane and Mr. C and that both parties are aware that that's who they're between. I think that could be true, but am not convinced that that is true. I don't think there's anything that has said that is what's going on yet. Um, 
and it certainly could be an intermediary or or one Diane, I guess, could not be aware of who she's ultimately communicating with. Um, uh, yeah, I've also been surprised at how many people now, after seeing Mr. C in the glass box room, have just decided that he's the billionaire, uh, which um, I, I also, again, maybe is true, but I don't think that we have seen evidence showing that that is definitively true. No, he doesn't behave like a billionaire. No. You think he would have better people trying to kill Dougie if he was a billionaire? <laughs> well... Yeah. I mean, because he does have two very competent hitmen, it seems. Uh, um, and and maybe it's not that um, the people trying to kill Dougie are incompetent, but Dougie is essentially getting assistance from otherworldly forces. Um, I mean, Ike the Spike seemed like he was fairly, you know, wasn't he didn't conduct his job neatly. Uh, but it seemed like he was good at his job, uh, given what his job was. Um, yeah. So do you actually have any thoughts on the nature of the relationship between Dougie and Mr. C here and how that might ultimately be resolved or if it is going to be resolved in the return? Yeah. You mean like, is it as simple as the good part of Dale, the bad part of Dale? Um, uh, it's I essentially have all of the thoughts and none of the thoughts. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I find really curious is whether Dale, whether Dougie Cooper um, and Mr. C can exist in the same physical space at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there does seem to be this momentum of there being a showdown of some sort. Um, but, uh, in some ways I hope that there's not, um, just because the, even just imagining the visuals of that seem kind of off to me. Um, but that's something that has never really been explored in the Twin Peaks universe because we've never had a situation that we know of like this, where you have the split entities of one individual existing in the physical world at the same time. Um, uh, I, yeah, I mean, um, I guess I have a little bit of a problem imagining Dougie as just the good part of Dale Cooper, um, because I think Dale Cooper, um, the good part cannot exist by itself, um, I think, in the way that the bad part can. Um, the good part is informed by his compassion, which is informed by his awareness of um, of darkness and of the darkness within him as well as outside of him. Um, you know, there's you also have a debate about what you can consider canon. Um, but if you if you look at the autobiography of Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, uh, um you know, it was not a uh, happy-go-lucky drink coffee and donuts, like two thumbs up, smiling and whistling down the sidewalk life that he lived. Um, and the sort of goodness that we saw of Dale Cooper in seasons one and two, um, it seems to me can't exist without everything else in him. Um, it can't exist alone the way that the evil 
impulses in him potentially can. Um, and ultimately, that might be why Mr. C is kind of is, is a very dynamic character and, and, and gripping character, but less interesting on some level, um, because he is just motivated by uh, um, by sort of ego and need and pure selfish drive, um, total lack of empathy. So I think um, you mentioned it just now, but this idea of the darkness which comes along with uh, the concept of Mr. C and the duality of having a split Cooper, for example. Um, I think what we've been seeing so far in the first 13 episodes, and it is still building, is the extent at which darkness is spreading, potentially yeah. at, a, you know, at a level that we may not have anticipated when the show began. And that ties into some things that we were talking about just before we were recording about you know, themes of, uh, you know, of the returning, of mortality, of loneliness, of all these things which are starting to build. How do you think that they've played into um, how the return is, you know, is presented? Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the kind of infinite number of, or one of the number of infinitely fascinating things about this season is how much it seems to comment on a reality that did not exist when they filmed it. Um, uh, I mean, in, in the darkness and the sort of desolateness and in, in a lot of ways, the kind of not a hundred percent absence of hope, but 98% absence of hope, you know, you look in the Palmer household and that seems pretty devoid of hope. Um, uh, that feels attuned to this political moment, especially in the U.S., um, in a way that it would have been impossible to predict, obviously, um, when this was being filmed, which is something else that I find fascinating. And I think that's something that happens with great art. It ends up reflecting um, society in ways that it did not set out to do consciously. Um, uh, but you know, something that I think hangs over the return very heavily is this sense that, um, the sense of loneliness and being alone. Um, uh, you know, if, if you think, if you think about all of the characters, um, you know, Diane is someone who is, seems painfully alone. Um, uh, it's sort of etched onto her face, her, her solitude, both from the group that she's in, um, but also, uh, you know, her, her, her many dalliances with men, it's sort of described in a way that it seems like there's not an emotional connection there. Um, uh, you think of, you know, you think of Sarah Palmer, um, you think of Hawk and the log lady, um, two characters who do seem to have this connection and are both still painfully alone and can't even share, you know, Hawk says, I can't tell you that when, 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 when Margaret wants to know what it is he found, um, uh, you know, you have Frank and Doris Truman, um, uh, and a sort of overwhelming solitude that seems to exist individually in them where they both feel as if the other on some very fundamental level doesn't 
understand or experience what they're experiencing. Um, uh, you have that heartbreaking scene of Big Ed at the end of, of I mean, that everything about Big Ed was sort of heartbreaking there. Um, you know, him, him, him telling Bobby you shouldn't eat alone and then slurping down the soup from a to-go container um, uh, and that, 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 that sort of added further added sense of unreality that, that you also commented on in your recap by the fact that what he sees is not what's happening. There's that glimmer in the reflection that is off. Um, uh, and so I guess for me that the resonance of our fundamental kind of experience as being alone on this planet um, and the difficulty, if not impossibility, of forming sort of um, soul-affirming connections uh, is something that has come through very strongly in this. Um, and at the same time, it's not totally absent. Um, I thought one of the most touching moments in the entire run was at breakfast in the Mitchum household when um, when Bradley was just could not wait to kill Dougie, uh, but he sits down and Rodney's having his cereal and and before before Bradley sits down, Rodney just sort of gently pushes the milk over uh, towards his brother because he knows he's going to need it for his cereal. Um, uh, and there was something about that that was it was like two people who truly understood each other um, and were there for each other. Um, there's something about that relationship, uh, and they're obviously not the nicest of people, um, but there's something about that that does seem to show um, that there is a possibility of connection. Um, you know, then at the same time, you have their interaction with Sandy, Mandy, and Candy, uh, and the total dislocation from any connection that's going on there. Um, so I guess for, for, for me, that's something that has come through as strongly as the sense of mortality being something sort of hanging over this season. Um, uh, that it's not just mortality, it's the sort of urgency to form a human connection before you leave this planet. Um, we talked a little bit also about how I think that's there between Albert and Gordon um, uh, and scenes that are only more powerful because um, you know, David Lynch has talked about how he and Miguel Ferrer became much closer friends during that process. Um, and he, no one knew the extent of Miguel's illness. Um, uh, and so you have that sort of dialogue between what's happening artistically on screen and the real world going on at the same time. Um, yeah. One question actually I do have for you two. Uh, is um, at the end of episode 11, when the jackpots lady comes over to the table, yeah. uh-huh. uh, and her son is named Denver. Um, oh, Denver and Bo. there's Denver Bot. Yes, that seemed so auspicious to me. And as soon as I said it, I yelled like, holy crap. And my wife was like, what? What are you? Because she hasn't read The Secret History. Uh, and um, uh, I have no idea what that was supposed to mean, but Denver is not a common name. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that you do have that, um, that resonance with The Secret History, was, was one of the, it's, that's been one of the mysteries to me. Do, have you, yeah, do you have think, any? Yeah. Well, I think, um, so to me, I noticed exactly the same thing, but 
it's one of those moments where I have wondered whether it's uh, it's inspired by the amount of groundwork that Mark Frost put into developing the ideas and the mythology that he wanted to put into the secret history. I'm not sure how the direct link would actually work, right? but it did jump out as something that um, warranted sort of further further thinking on it. It just seemed um, such an odd name to use for any other reason than to link back. Right. And these, are the me- uh, these are the moments where it's like you were saying, there's, there are things in, in The Return which I think are really worth um, investigating at immense depth to see exactly how these things fit together. But I think there are also other things around which on one hand are continuity errors or just yeah, uses yeah. of names in this case. Right. Or they're just ones which are meant to be subtle callbacks that sort of keep your neurons firing and right. keep you a little bit off guard and maybe make an otherwise uh, very gentle, loving scene yeah, that seeing right. there. It, it kind of subverts it a little bit by making people who are aware of the secret history suddenly think twice and Add maybe that, look for yeah. something or feel something different when they're experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, that, that I, I, I like that way of, of looking at it because that was one of the sort of most nakedly sentimental scenes um, so far. And then to throw in like, up, oh, remember Denver, Bob, uh, <laughs> what happened to him? Where did he disappear to? Um, uh, it was, uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's that same sense of, sort of disquietude that exists in the in the scenes where nothing's happening um where just you're primed to wonder is that because nothing's happening or something very bad is happening um one last thing i want to ask you i want to make sure i ask you about is what do you think is going on with sarah palmer because i i i you know the the um uh I, it would. It, I think it would disturb me if this was true, but um, there seems to be some indication that there could be a Black Lodge spirit um, residing in or around her in some way. Um, uh, her interaction with Hawk was 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 almost chilling, um, and then her. Uh, her her sort of need to watch bloodshed, um, uh, you know, constantly, even if it's just on a on a loop. Um, uh, the fact that you had the fan, um, you know, they they had not one but two shots of the fan, yeah. uh, and um, the only person who would turn the fan on was Leland, uh, and. When Leland turned the fan on, that was as dark as things got in in seasons one and two. Um, yeah. So, what do you think is is going on with her? I I don't know if she's got a, a lodge spirit inhabiting her or is channeling in some way. We, we've seen her able to channel things from the lodge before. That's true, um, right? In the season two finale, where I think she was ch- was she channeling Addie at that point. So was it Annie or, the... or, 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 or oh, was it Wyndham Earl? Oh yes, it's the you know, it's the message. Um, I'm in the Black Lodge with uh, with Dale Cooper. 
And so, it, yeah. yeah, right. But when, and that that was when when Jacoby brought her in and she gave it to yeah. Briggs, yeah. right? So was that that was Annie? Is that the sort of? Well, I could be either of them, couldn't it? So I've never really come down on one side or the other on this. I'm sure there is a definitive answer to it, right. but I maybe there's not. To, yeah, I mean, I think that because so I used to think it was Windermill, but actually I remember that seeing the scenes in fire walk with me where you have annie projecting yeah, from right. the red room made me wonder if that was another way that a message was coming through but the fact is it was you know even then i'm not even sure if they wrote it in to be such a powerful enigmatic and ambiguous statement um i mean i think you can interpret it both ways right um and at times i've you know, I flip-flopped with these things. So, you yeah, know, I right. think about it a certain way and think it's one character. No. But if you if you sort of think of the way that Sarah is now, um, that if you know if pain and suffering is something that the the Black Lodge spirits want to feed off, then is she basically acting as a, a sort of beacon? As because she more than anyone in that town seems to be. Just, just living an existence of nothing but that. Uh, but there, there's, I think there's something in the house. I'm not sure that there's something in her, but I think there's something in the house that's affecting her. You had an interesting theory about the fan and the vortex. Yeah, I think, you know, just visually, I think it was interesting that um, they've introduced this idea of that big vortex and right. that, that uh, Cole could see into it and see what was beyond it and he saw the woodsman on the you know on the staircase and that maybe links to the painting right and um, and Laura as well as well you know i did wonder you know that was the first time i suddenly saw another big swirling entity right um you know much in the same way that we see the fan and i do wonder if the on one hand these vortexes might exist as portals in various locations across the world but maybe that was um, a way to introduce the idea that that was uh, directly linked to how the fan could actually function in that right. house in some way i mean right. purely visually it's it's always been a very unsettling piece of imagery in the twin peaks universe um, i just saw that maybe there was some connection there especially because we knew that there was something beyond that vortex that we didn't want to come through but also something that could reach out and grab people from the realm that we're in right suck it back and i get the sense that sarah's living in a haunted existence in that house it feels like she's trapped within it but also i think it almost might be the case that she is aware of what's happening she could be seeing things that are there but she might actually think that she is crazy and she isn't really seeing things and i think that's what's kind of scary the fact that maybe she believes that with everything that's happened no one would believe her right maybe the things that she's seeing are so strange that they could be things like visions of maybe they're visions of laura i mean we know that laura has reappeared to cole in some way we know that obviously laura was whisked out of the red room uh, right at the beginning of the return you know, I've got all kinds of ideas about what could be going on there. I just think that Sarah herself, I, you know, I kind of agree. I don't think that she's herself inhabited. But I seem to think that maybe 
you know, the battle between the black and the white lodgers could be very much centred on her, given her links to both Bob and to Laura as well, which I feel has been ignored in the last few parts, but with the introduction of Sarah's arc, that could become quite important right. in the uh, final five hours. It, 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 there did seem... Television. Sorry, what did you say? Sorry? I was just going to say the glitching of the television as well would... If, if there was some kind of lodgy entity in the house is it causing the te- that where that boxing match was glitching over and over and over again and repeating itself and there seemed to be something going on where the electrical sort of spark for the glitch was not happening within the tv sonically yeah. there was something else going on there also in that scene appeared to be a plate of creamed corn um sitting next to the sort of the, the the coffee table there yeah. um along with uh along with in the background confirmation that donna as laura flynn boyle does actually exist in this <laughs> yeah. twin peaks universe um uh yeah you know you asked early on um is there things i've disappointed with and actually one thing i have been disappointed with is that um is that cheryl lee is not been really in this because I found her performance in Firewalk with me just to be revelatory, um, so astounding and affecting and powerful. Um, and maybe she'll be in all five episodes remaining. And uh, but I, I sort of feel like you could not have I could not have too much Cheryl Lee, um, and so that has been a disappointment to me. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I haven't seen her, um, been able to show the depth and range that she did in Firewalk with me and other performances. Um, and, uh, she obviously is this, is this kind of specter or Laura is the specter hanging over everything. Um, but I would love for Shirley as an actor to be in it more. So, I suppose to close, I would um, ask you, what are your hopes for the final few hours of the return? Um, um, You know, in some ways, uh, it's possible that David has sort of um, gotten me to exist in a uh, transcendental meditation type of place with this in that um, I feel like I'm sort of beyond expectations. Like it, it's, uh, um, there are all sorts of things that I can imagine and would be exciting. Um, uh, and there are things that when I think them through might be disappointing. Uh, but I, I think that whatever happens, I'm just excited that there are five more hours. Um, the thing I'm dreading most is those five hours being up. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, I think 18 hours is probably, um, sufficient for this story. Uh, but I'll, I'll just, I'll be sad when I don't get to think about and communicate and, 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 and with, uh, everything that's going on in this world. Um, and with everyone else who is, thinking about and watching and experiencing and, and communicating about this world. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, in some ways I do feel like I'm sort of beyond expectations. I mean, th- from the 13 episodes that have happened so far, 
I, I, I am very confident that whatever happens is going to be um, incredible and remarkable and uh, thought-provoking and um, adjectives that I can't even imagine because there'll be some new episode that is as part eight-ish as part eight-ish was, but in an entirely different direction. Um, uh, and that's something else that I think is a real gift of the show, that um, it has completely taken me outside of what I want to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be living in a place where I just want it to happen. Um, and, and, and that's, it's not even like, that's enough. That feels like more than I could have asked for, you know, on the one hand, there is only five hours left. On the other hand, like you think about the season two and the season one finale, those were 43 minutes. They were not double episodes. So (laughs) much happened. I mean, especially the season one finale is crazy. And the season two finale, you, you, or I forget, I feel like every time I watch it, how much other extraneous crap was going on that had nothing yeah. to do with the last 15 or 20 minutes and how much yeah. like sort of silly stuff there is. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, you can do a lot uh, in, 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 in an hour. Wow. So with that, I think that's a, that's a good place to, to pause. It gives us a lot to think about. We'd like to thank you, Seth, for yeah. joining us for a slice of pie. Thank you, um, too. No, that's great. And we hope that, uh, yeah, we'll continue chatting about all the intricacies of what happens over the next five hours, whether they're the next or indeed the last five hours. Right. Yes. Right. And I, I, I do need to say that both of your asides I love so much. Um, uh, um, it, you know, I found that the, the swans, like I knew nothing of that story, um, and, uh, and the flying Dutchman like that, those, I love when you go and talk about that for 10 minutes. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, it's absolutely, it's, it's thrilling. Um, uh, and it's, yeah. So, uh, more. Excellent. More tangents. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly, you know, later on in the season, there's not long left, but we'd love to have you on again. I would to, love uh, it. To dissect what's going on, maybe some more even bigger picture ideas as uh, as the series has progressed. I would really love it. That would be great. So thanks a lot, Seth. Yes, thank us. both of you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was our first Slice of Pie interview. We're going to do a few more over the coming weeks and maybe, you know, as the series ends, we might even reflect on it with uh, fans of uh, Twin Peaks and maybe even fans of our podcast as well. But yeah, tomorrow is part 14. Now, we're not going to have our episode up at the usual time this week. It'll probably be up by Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday. So we'll see you next time for Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Goodbye. Goodbye.